Hello and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the ALT Learn Podcast. I'm John Tate and I'll be your host as we break down the craft of teaching and the science of learning, what this pedagogy looks like in the classroom, and get to find out how our teachers are turning all this theory into practice. So, let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of the ALT Learn Podcast, where we've got a great episode lined up for you today, discussing the lessons learned from alternative provision that we can put into practice in mainstream schools. So I'm pleased to say that alongside me on today's show, we have another external guest of the podcast, Mike Armiger. Mike is a former head of educational provision, specifically for young people affected by trauma, SEND and mental health needs. He works with universities on models and approaches to student well-being, and is a specialist advisor in relation to trauma and mental health. He's the author of the Regulation Framework, a whole school system and support planning framework for young people affected by trauma. And this has now been adopted by health and education teams in five European countries. Mike also works with mental health services and trains health professionals in suicide prevention and mitigation, including response and assessment tools. So a warm welcome to the podcast, Mike, and a big thanks for coming on to discuss this with me today. Oh, my pleasure, John. It's great to be with you. and looking forward to the discussion. Brilliant. So... Let's start by looking at an overview of what alternative provision actually is um, and, and what it looks like across the UK. So can you give our listeners a broad overview of the different types of setting that you normally work with and maybe the general route that children would follow in order to be placed in one of these provisions? Yeah, so alternative provision is quite a broad banner. So um, AP, as it's often shortened to, is uh, a place where students would go outside of mainstream education. So that might involve a pre. Now, if you said PRU, people would ordinarily think that that might be a permanent element of a school. So pupil referral unit, which I I don't really think is a very nice phrase. You know, I tend to just call them a school. It might be controversial. But um, pupil referral units can be, you know, short stay. They can Mm -hmm. be long term. So, for instance, you could have a 12-week assessment unit Mm -hmm. where a student would get referred by a mainstream school through a panel and the local authority would place that student there temporarily to try and identify what their needs were. And the job of the staff there at that pro would be to put them on a particular pathway, that whether that might be SEND, whether that might be vocational, whether that might be um, permanent place in AP, or whether that might then be returned to mainstream. Mm-hmm. You might then have hospital education. So AP is also um, an area that might cover a lot of SEND specific, or it might be a hospital education service. Mm-hmm. So there are education services that sit within hospitals. It might be a CAMS unit. There's lots of different alternative provision that isn't necessarily just down to exclusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is often what people think. And then you've got alternative providers as well. So it might be particularly that a student is already under some sort of um, pro setting or already under a mainstream unit, but they have a kind of wraparound arrangement mm-hmm. whereby alternative provision might be that for a percentage of their mainstream education, um, whilst they're still on roll at the school, that they maybe have their needs met in a slightly different way with a provider. Mm-hmm. That could be under a vocational banner. That could be under an um, early college entry. There's lots of different ways in which you could meet those needs. So one of the things that I kind of have a problem with, with alternative provision, is that what we tend to, that that word and that phrase tends to make people think that one has to be replaced for another. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, you know, they tend to think that, alternative provision should be when one has already failed. Mm-hmm. For me, you know, and I've been talking about this for ages, but one, one of the things I wish we could move to is coexisting provision. Mm-hmm. So actually you don't have to wait until you get excluded until, you know, people in mainstream education who absolutely don't want to press that red button mm-hmm. to, to exclude. And I meet many colleagues all the time who don't want to go through that process because 
a lot of the students end up with a sense of failure by the time they've already you know got to that stage of, of AP so I would love us to move to a place where we got to coexist and provision rather than alternative yeah. um but if you said alternative provision to me those would be the kind of things that I would be explaining to people and thinking of brilliant and, and, and that was really nice there's about three things I want to kind of pick up on there the first thing it was really nice in terms of saying that you'd like to just call them a school, you know, rather than rather than an alternative provision and rather than something that actually is feels like it's because, you know, rightly or wrongly, I think lots of people, and certainly I have had in the past, we do have that kind of stigma that when you hear that, it, it, we think it's about behaviour or we think it's about, uh, you know, th those type of things. I think that that point you make about it can be, you know, from a medical point of view, it can be so many different reasons. It's not just about the kind of permanently excluded and also the point you made about it also doesn't have to be, permanent you know this is sometimes about uh you know a short period of time it can be a different placement that, that's needed for a you know a short either, either a crisis response or a different context with a view to returning back into that kind of mainstream setting i think that's really important to remember as well that, that it's not always this is it now you know because actually you know you and i both know that we haven't got the capacity you know, in terms of the bottleneck of it you know if you enter that system and don't ever leave it then actually, you know, at some point, you know, we either need more of those places, which are hard to come by anyway, or then it stops other people accessing that that kind of that that service that they need. So I think that, that that's really good, and it was really nice to to kind of hear that, that the the wide variety for people to think, well, wow, there's so many different kind of places um, and and different kind of provisions. So because of that, and I suppose if we look think think about all the differences of those provisions that you've seen, I'm sure that you've probably seen many differences as well in the quality of provision across the country especially in all those different kind of in all those different services so where you've where you've seen some of the best and where you've kind of seen some of the kind of you know, not so good um what you know what has that kind of alternative provision done to meet the needs of children that they edu educate where you've seen it being really really good it's a great question and i think one of the one of the first things that i arrive at is that i think they def we define success slightly differently in ap and we define achievements slightly differently. And I don't think that that's because mainstream do anything wrong. And it's certainly not the case that mainstream and then AP exist separately. Mm -hmm. Often, you know, people sit GCSEs within within main, um, within alternative uh, provisions. So it's not the case that necessarily we're doing fundamentally different things. I think the problem often is, is that, you know, with qualification frameworks in particularly, and the way that staffing structures are put in place for mainstream schools, a secondary mainstream doesn't have the flexibility that a pro would necessarily have. Yeah. So we define success slightly differently in the sense that actually we, we try to identify what pathway that student should be following. Mm -hmm. And that pathway might be vocational. It might be centered around local industry and local community. It might be a send pathway to identify the needs and help them build narrative and understanding of themselves um, and help them identify what they're good at and what their interests are. Sometimes it might be that actually we put together alternative qualification frameworks. So there might be entry level qualifications for them or there might be more vocational elements. Mm -hmm. Early college entry is something that many colleges offer in, in many local areas for AP. So what, what I tend to think is, is that um, one of the things that we try to do is broaden the definition of success for those young people. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we also, I think, is really positive in many of the provisions that I see, I touched on it just a moment ago where I said about building narrative. Yeah, Narrative is really important for those young people because the narrative often by the time they arrive is I'm an inherently bad person. I can't do anything right. My adversity is dictating my life chances, which often tragically it is. Mm -hmm. um, and all of those combinations of things mean that they form an identity and a narrative 
based around all the things that are not going well for them or all the things that have been adverse in their life or negativity or things that they're struggling with, rather than actually them being able to identify with their successes, with a different narrative that would possibly put them in better stead for the future. Mm -hmm. So much of our job is often built around building that narrative with them and understanding themselves in a slightly different way. You know, I often say to people, you know, very often when they arrive, they often believe that they're very inherently angry people. Yeah. And what we quickly discover, of course, is that they're scared. They're scared, not angry. Yeah. And and that is something which, especially with young teenage boys, with the influence in their community, once they feel that their identity is rooted in that way, they then seek other people whose mm-hmm. identities are rooted in that way. And, you know, they often become magnets to each other, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, it's all about narrative as well. And the last thing I would say is there there is within ap there is an equal there is an ability to have an equal emphasis placed on social emotional education mm-hmm. and because it is such a need across every single student that arrives at the door regardless of what their uh, different needs are one of the things that we know is that intervention frameworks within mainstream education are very very difficult because of the amount of people that you need essentially logistically to, to meet need of right mm-hmm. you've got pastoral teams who are often having to run operational and logistical elements so they don't always get the opportunity to do that therapeutic work in that the students really need. Mm-hmm. And that's through no fault of theirs, it's just demand. So in AP, what we find is that the structures and the curriculums themselves actually meet the need because we're able to be a little bit more tailored around the needs of our cohort. Mm-hmm. So whereas in mainstream, you would have 95% of students who the curriculum would meet the needs of, obviously in AP, we've got 95% of our students who would be your 5%. Yeah, so yeah. it's it, it's flipping the narrative, really, and thinking about what we do on a universal basis. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that our universal ba- um, provision will often be very, very strong quality first teaching, the same as anybody mm-hmm. and any colleague would aspire to in any provision. But that has to include at the, form- at, at the front of it, front and centre, therapeutic practice and work. So there are slightly different logistical elements mm. in AP. Um, some of them are more complex, the mainstream in terms of um, <laughs> often security, often um, uh, you know behaviour challenges, but also um, often safeguarding can be very complex. Um, but the flow of the building and all of those things is, yeah. is very different. Mm, interesting. And I think that going back to that, that the, the key point that you made there in 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 that, if I if I will to if I may to pull it out building that narrative and i think that that's what i'd like to really kind of to to, to really focus there is actually you know it's, it's interesting that you know you say about kind of building that narrative because if you know if we tell students that they're successful or if we tell students they've failed then they're going to believe that and, and and you know as adults and as human beings the you know the more times we hear something suddenly the more times we're going to you know we're going to start to believe it aren't we you know if we keep hearing those messages if we keep hearing that we've been successful and well done and you've started but equally if we're hearing that you're angry, you failed, you've been alternative provision, you can't be in mainstream, you need to be, you know, then it, it starts to define someone, doesn't it? So I think that's really, really important to make sure that we use, consciously use the right language, building that narrative uh, to really support those students in, as you say, maybe a different type of success criteria that's that, that, that's context specific, either to uh, their physical or you know, emotional or, or, or you know needs, but also the you know the, the the context of you know how old they are, what they're doing, where they want to go to as well. Because as we both know, not everyone is going to be choosing the same pathway in life. You know, and 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 certainly you know that that academically that success criteria is going to look different for different people at different stages. So I think that's really important, and it's and it's lovely when when we feel we can really meet the needs of those those students. So that, that, that's great. 
Now, oh, sorry, can I, and can I just quickly yeah. say on that, John, one of the things that I would just add into that is that because I think very often we get into this sort of blame game in education where, you know, if, if somebody's failed in mainstream, you know, we tend to alienate people who've had to press those exclusion buttons. And, you know, I, I've been a head that's have to do it myself. You know, I totally understand it. One of the things that I think we have to be really conscious of is that with those students in particular, very often we are under so much pressure to make progress. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm constantly saying to colleagues is that progress and impact can be two totally different things. Mm-hmm. Impact often leads to progress, but there are going to be times where you've made an impact, but there's not been progress academically as such mm-hmm. or socially, emotionally. And so one of the things that I think we have to be really mindful of is that very often with these cohorts of students that often move towards AP is that progress can be very difficult to measure. So I'm trying to say very often to people nationally and locally, we have to be much better um, at building into our system the ability to evidence and monitor impact but understand that it might not necessarily equate to progress immediately and and actually that gets into the whole assessment debate and accountability and all of those different things doesn't it absolutely but i just always encourage colleagues to say you know let's think about impact not always progress yeah and, and i think you know also in that picking up on that is that nationally and again we need to be better at this nationally or internationally maybe as well that not every bit of progress can show up on a spreadsheet you know and equally not everything that should be measured or you know can be measured you know is actually worthwhile and and vice versa so there's lots of things that you you're going to see huge rapid changes you know even just the fact that 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 kind of smile and that body language and that kind of that warmth and that kind of I'm here I'm wanting to learn that doesn't show up on a spreadsheet anywhere you know because that but actually right. if you don't get that then we're not going to get the rest of it and equally there's lots of things that you know that might need to be put on a spreadsheet for for various things, but actually aren't aren't really related to what's really important in that child's life at that moment in time, and the progress you know that that, that, that that's going to kind of make, or that, that that we can actually see visibly and we can feel it in our gut, et cetera, et cetera, is sometimes hard to kind of quantify. And I think that yeah, we just need to be kind of professional enough to kind of understand that um, that it you know if if it was that easy and it can be everything could be put on an Excel spreadsheet, then you know, <laughs> would would have cracked this kind of, you know, years ago, you know? So, right. In, in terms of a, a, a segue to the next question, and it's interesting you talked about um, schools, mainstream schools being a bit more uh, formal or difficult in some of those, you know, well, actually, let me turn that around. I think you said the alternative provisions are sometimes a bit easier to be a bit more flexible because of the numbers, because of the context, et cetera, et cetera, and that 5%, 95% kind of split and stuff. So, you know, there are kind of differences of what schools and, and then APs can do. However, going back to the the kind of the title of the podcast, really, what I want to kind of look at now is what then can mainstream schools actually kind of pick up and replicate from some of these kind of things that, that AP have done? And yes, it might not be as easy because, you know, we've got kind of different models and different staff and structures and different success criteria, all the things that we already know about. But surely from your work, you know, you've obviously seen things that actually have really worked that you wish some mainstream schools could be able to kind of bottle and pick up and put in. So in in a nutshell, I suppose, what are those kind of few things that you feel that like mainstream colleagues who are listening can actually try and take and replicate? There's, there's a couple of things. I mean, one of them in particular is, is thinking about universal provision. So one of the things I think we get into a, um, <laughs> into a bit of a battle about is, is how we tear up interventions. Mm-hmm. And I was in a school the other week where you know they've got 25 different types of interventions going on all very valid all, mm. all fantastic doing amazing work however the universal provision you know there's a reason there's 25,000 interventions happening and it's because there's so many students who aren't accessing yeah. what's happening in the classroom so you know we get into this false dichotomy sometimes and one of the things that um I'm forever talking about is how we put forward that quality first teaching but that 
universal provision that includes those students is good for all students. Yeah, yeah. So I talk a lot about, you know, vocab, for instance, you know, one of the things I'm often going into classes and doing learning walks around, um, you know, the very first thing that I normally do if I set up a session is to highlight any key vocab, but more importantly, for them to highlight any vocab on the piece of work that they're doing so that I know where they are, what they're working on, but also anything additional context-wise I need to explain. Now, that is something that we're all very maybe keen on now and that would start to do maybe or that you know we're becoming very aware of however historically that's been very much a send based strategy that's not been something that is presumed to have been um, necessary for all students historically so i think quality first teaching is slightly more moving towards a more inclusive phase which is which is really good and we're starting to talk and understand things about recall which previously i don't think we necessarily completely got and understood yeah so if, I think sorry, if, I, if, well. I, if i just just jump in there Matt, i think it was just to, to make a little caveat that was that was great because I spoke to uh, to Gary Orbin uh, in one of the or other kind of send theme podcasts, and we were talking about that very very thing about quality first teaching. And he was kind of saying, you know, I'm not wanting to downplay that, you know, the, the kind of that the send needs, but actually, sometimes people feel it's really complicated and complex. And actually, let's just strip it back to what is great teaching, because actually, great if there's not great teaching, then we know that our send students, our disadvantaged students, those students start to suffer the most. You know, and where we have poorer schools as in, as in poorer quality of kind of quality of teaching schools that's where we see those bigger gaps kind of you know widening so if we just you know strip it all back and 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 one thing that he said to me in the podcast which I kind of I smiled at and thought wow why have I done that so many times he talked about the PD day at the start of the year with the teaching and learning lead still standing up on day one and giving their spiel and then the Senko standing up on day two and give it and he said why is it not together why are they not stood together actually you know standing together it being united together and actually delivering the same message of quality first teaching rather than the send stuff feeling like it's the send department's responsibility and people can go, oh, well, I only need to do that for one or two students that I may or may not look at their kind of passports or learning plans for. And it really struck me as like, like you know, one of those kind of moments where you're like, well, why have we always done that? Why do we keep doing that? So I think you're absolutely right. And sorry to interject there, but I just think it was a it was a worthwhile kind of if people have listened to previous episodes to link that back. That again, it's another credible voice saying, let's just get this right and make sure we have real high quality teaching for all our students, because then we'll 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 naturally narrow those gaps pretty quickly anyway. And when we see poorer teaching, that's when those gaps you know, inc increase. So, yeah, sorry, but I thought, I just thought it was a worthwhile to, to, to bring such, that all together. Such an important point. And, and actually, you've raised a, a, you know, a further one, which is my schools will be bored of me saying it. And because I go on about it all the time, all the schools I advise will work executively with. I always say to them, there is no such thing as a send learning walk. It yeah. doesn't happen. Every learning walk is a send walk. The Senko should not be going around doing separate learning walks. Every single learning walk book scrutiny should involve send. And if it doesn't, then that's a cultural issue as well yeah. as a learning issue. So we have to be really mindful of that. So I think you've raised a great point, John. The other thing I'd say as well is that um, in terms of stuff that that's, uh, mainstream can, can pick up on and maybe think about is, is understanding that what are the things we have to identify as pathways for these students? Now, identifying multiple pathways is not necessarily problematic in a mainstream school because you've got so many different things on offer 
And it's not just about curriculum pathways, but it's about tapping into your local community to see what pathways could possibly be out there for those students as well. Mm -hmm. So if they're not able to meet the GCSE thresholds or they're able to meet certain areas of GCSE entry, but we know that we've got to top their timetable up and they're offered with certain things. There are often some really great local resources that take a little bit of work in terms of setting up, but there is no reason why many mainstream um, schools don't have resources on their doorstep that they can tap into to create a, a certain pathway. And then that becomes a wraparound element where they still have an identity of there being a student at that school, but they might have some additional elements of learning through local allotment schemes, or it might be through local mentoring um, uh, support. Mm -hmm. There's often local industry that will, that will support more um, heavy work experience. Yeah. There's entry level stuff. There's loads of things. But, but, but one of the core things I wanted to talk about very briefly was the PSHE curriculum. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that I think we've got into a real, real problem with nationally, and this is not necessarily, you know, colleagues' fault, this is certainly sort of directive, is that we are focused on thinking about width and the coverage of PSHE. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and because we've got so much to do right and it can range sometimes from teaching kids how to clean their teeth mm -hmm. right the way through to relationships road safety you name it it's all there yep. so one of the things I think we have to be really mindful of is that if we're talking about PSHG how are we reacting what's our safeguarding data telling us what are those reports that we're running on our mm -hmm. software telling us about the needs of our cohorts but more importantly what are we covering in depth because for me, there are often vertical ways that we can cover those areas in depth and emotional literacy is absolutely one of them. So most of my schools have a curriculum um, sequence whereby emotional literacy um, and mental health and well-being will be once every six weeks. It won't be we wait until January mm -hmm. um, to, to do a six week block. It has to be themed throughout the year. So when we think about our curriculum sequencing, one of the things I often say is, you know, yes, we've got to think about width and coverage, of course we have, but we have to also think about depth and how we how we find that balance is very difficult, of course, because we only have a certain amount of time in the day. But what we do have in AP is that real need to analyze our cohorts mm -hmm. and say, and our curriculum choices are as such because of X, Y, and Z. And, and for me, I think mainstream could do a much better job at making that case mm -hmm. um, because I think so often we're held to that coverage viewpoint when I wish sometimes we actually turned around and said, we, we can't cover all of that. We want to, yeah, but we yeah. can't cover all of that. And the reason that we've chosen to do this instead is because this is what our evidence says. So I, I kind of think there's a tension there that we kind of maybe need to talk about a little bit more. But PSHE being reactive and covering depth is something I think mainstream can do a lot more of. Yeah, I totally agree. And ultimately, if the curriculum isn't there to serve the specific kids in front of us, then what is it there for anyway? You know, actually, it's not just about... You know, you know, and that's why schools have been given, you know, the, the creativity to actually create their curriculum to a certain degree to, uh, you know, to, to how you want, want to kind of write it and, and how you want to implement it in terms of the, the kind of intent. Because actually, you know, you, like you're absolutely right, your the information that you're getting through from safeguarding referrals in certain year groups or certain, you know, genders, et cetera, that has to start to influence, you know, what you're kind of delivering. Uh, because if it's not and it's not talking to it, then actually it's pointless collecting the data in the first place. You know, you've got to make sure that if we know that, there's a sudden rise in whatever it is, whether it's sexting, whether it's teenage pregnancies, whether it's self-harm in year nine in the autumn term. And there's been a bit of a trend in this last couple of years. We need to be front loading our curriculum either in year nine or at the back end of year eight, you know, to make sure we're actually doing something about that rather than just saying, oh, we know this. And, you know, well, our curriculum is our curriculum. Well, let, you know, let's get it changed. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, now, a point I wanted to kind of to, to, to come up with, uh, to, well, to come back to, you mentioned it earlier on in this in terms of about, 
you wish that I think you, you said something along the lines of you wish that kind of uh, pros or alternate provision in schools didn't feel kind of separate and they could almost kind of coexist. So from that kind of point of view, then um, how can schools and APs work more effectively together to enable a smoother transition either for a child going in or coming back out? Because obviously we talked about it not being kind of permanent. So what can schools do to actually kind of to, to, to help that and facilitate that better for, for our young people? I'll be honest, one of the biggest challenges that I often come across with referrals in, whether that's a panel, whether that's gone through different routes, is the lack of information often that is mm -hmm. there with students' needs. Um, now, one of the things that I think we've got into a problem with is that we often use things like pupil passports, which mm -hmm. I don't have a particular problem with. But what we don't necessarily have are we have summative documents, which a pupil passport would be one of them. Mm -hmm. um, so something that provides something that's quite brief. I mean, an overview. Um, but we don't have substantial documents that then sort of build that narrative, going back to that as well. So we don't have necessarily all the level of detail that I wish we sometimes had. Now, I think one of the things that often happens is then the baseline that those that AP has to then put in place. Um, often there are huge gaps in need. Mm -hmm. And I think there has to be a better process outlined. So, for instance, I work with the local authority who's just um, said that actually the baseline has to be administered mm -hmm. by the referring school. Um, into AP rather than they actually start there, then have to go through the whole turmoil of a week where they have to do all of those baseline tests and understand where they're at and what's going on uh -huh. um, before they then understand what the provision needs to look like. Well, yeah. for me, that makes total that makes no sense. Yeah. You know, you expect to start in a school where, you know, those people know what you need and you've got appropriate provision there from day one. Otherwise you just work in deficit. So, but for me, I think that's really important, how we work together to baseline students and, and support that referral process. Secondly, yeah. keeping in touch is vital, mm -hmm. especially if there's if it's not a one-way street. So very often, yeah, we might turn up to meetings um, multi-agency-wise, but very often placing or referring schools won't necessarily have any keeping in touch arrangements with those students. Mm -hmm. And their identity changes if they're part of another school for a, whether it be a temporary or permanent mm -hmm. time so how do they then have the ability to either repair relationships how do they have the ability to you know talk about the future if we don't have that keeping in touch element and will they feel part of that school community when they go back and thinking then about exit criteria is obviously really important too are very often we draw plans up in isolation and you know we talk about well once they come back this is what's going to happen mm -hmm. and this is what's going to be in place so often the conversation I see that doesn't happen is, and what happens when they don't play ball or what happens when it goes wrong? Yeah. What do we do then? What's our plan B, C, D? And, and actually, I think there has to be a way that we can move towards more of a hybrid model for those um, uh, for those placements towards the last couple of end of the weeks of placement. It's mad to me that we go 12 to 14 weeks full time in that crew, and then we don't start to then go well, actually, on week 10, they're going to start going back to mainstream yeah, yeah. and then with proof support to settle them in um, and to support the teachers, to meet them all, to make sure that they've Absolutely. got the right plans in place, all of those things. So there's there's ways, I think, that we could be more autonomous and more yeah. creative with with that time. 12 weeks in a proof, I mean, it's never 12 weeks, it's often always more. But, but that time, if you say 14 weeks, that's not 14 weeks in that building. Yeah. That's 14 weeks of support. And how we use that mm -hmm. is, is down to us. Great. And I think, I think that, that there's some really kind of key messages there. Absolutely. And, and you know, it sounds it sounds obvious, doesn't it? You know, let's have those kind of keeping in touch. Let's have those kind of phased return. And, you know, why would you, why would you not want to do that? But again, I think it's just 
we get into the habit sometimes of, of like you said, that 14 weeks of being out with it. But we'll actually, let, let's look at it as a, as a different kind of, as a different parameter. So brilliant. Right. Coming to my final question then, I've kind of, I've asked everyone in these send kind of uh, related themed podcasts and almost a bit of a soapbox moment for a, a couple of sentences or a couple of, a real kind of short, sweet soundbite really. So if there's one lasting message, Mike, that you'd like to leave our listeners with about AP and what we can learn from it, what would it be? That you can learn all sorts of lessons. Um, I was watching a a community event the other week mm-hmm. where they'd run a Macmillan coffee morning out of a pro and a student who had literally quote said that they had been told that they never amount to anything um was terrified about sitting in front of members of their community um and selling them cakes mm-hmm. um it was a massive barrier for them the amount of pride that they that they then mm-hmm. experienced and, and what that gave them launched them in so many different things and so many different areas of this school achievement um and so for me you know those lessons are as important very often as the ones that we teach academically and i think sometimes um what ap gives us is that ability to make education more relevant to the lives in which these young people are living mm-hmm. and i think that um if it's if there's anything that i've learned over the years in ap it's that we are speaking to people who don't prioritize Shakespeare. We don't mm-hmm. prioritize, you know, the things mm-hmm. that often is rooted in our curriculums. And it's our job to make it relevant to their lives um, more than ever when they're in AP. So all sorts of lessons is the mantra that I tend to use. Fantastic. And that's a lovely way to finish, really, that actually there are lots of lessons to be learned. We just need to go looking for them, don't we? We need to look at those those real success stories, look at how it's different and look at what we can kind of bring into this. So, yeah, that's been great. Well, listen, thank you so much for a really interesting discussion today, Mike. Um, and if our listeners have been as interested as I've been, then I need to tell them that further helps at hand because you're running uh, a webinar for us on the 30th of November. Um, and all the details on how a book can be found on our training website, yes at aretelearningtrust.net. That's yes, Y-E-S-A-T, not the at sign, but A-T, arete, A-R-E-T-E, learningtrust.net. And then you click on the training and events tab. So yeah, it's been a really interesting discussion, Mike. Um, I've really kind of it got me thinking about kind of, you know, when I was ahead of you, when I was kind of in charge of kind of safeguarding behavior, pastoral welfare, kind of all the things that we could have done differently at the time. So yeah, hopefully that's really kind of got people thinking. Um, and if they want to kind of, you know, get on the webinar, then the details are there. Um, so yeah, much appreciated, Mike. It's been great speaking to you. My pleasure. Thanks, John. Good to see you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the ALT Learn Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode where we'll be speaking to more of our teachers and finding out how they're turning theory into practice. Until then, take care.